Good evening and welcome to our Bible study series. We're continuing in the series that we've been doing entitled Out of Bondage into Abundance. And the recordings and the notes for all of these are available uh, at our website, new-life-ministries.org. And the recordings are also all available at mixlr, mix.lr. And a number of folks uh, just listen uh, live or they listen to the recordings there at mix.lr. Okay, here we go. Uh, these are exciting times in which we're living. The world is going completely crazy. This nation is racing as fast as it can away from the precepts and the statutes of our God. But he's called us to put on the whole armor of God and to stand. So these are days for us to be strong in the Lord, strong in his word. And I just came back from uh, the weekend in Florida and they had asked me to do the uh, next section of this Bible study, uh, Defeating the Seven Nations of Canaan. So somehow we managed to do all seven nations in three nights. And I was so blessed seeing the desire and the hunger of the people there to hear the Word of God. Uh, I think each night we went for about oh, I don't know, from 7 to 11 o'clock at night studying the Word of God, and they were ready for more. And I have to kind of shift gears and go back a little bit in time because we haven't gotten to those seven nations yet. We're getting there. We're almost there. That's part six. And if you are following along in the notes, we've come to page 66 uh, in part five. And what we want to look at tonight is another aspect of why God allowed the Israelites to spend such a long time in the wilderness. And we'll see even more clearly, probably next time, that the 40 years in the wilderness was not an arbitrary number. God was judging the Israelites because of their 40-day spy mission into the land of Canaan. Uh, that was a big mess, and they all got discouraged and lost their faith. And basically God said, 40 years for the 40 days that you spent exploring the land. And he waited 40 years until that entire generation died out in the wilderness. And let me just recap the primary reasons for which God uh, allowed them to spend such a long period of time in the desert or in the wilderness. Remember, when they left Mount Sinai, we're told in Deuteronomy 1 verse 2 that it was an 11-day journey to the promised land. I don't know about you, but I don't want to spend 40 years on an 11-day journey. And may take us a little more than 11 days, but I don't want to waste time. And these are the last days, and we don't have any more time to waste. We need to get serious about God, stop going around in circles, spinning our wheels, going one step forward and two steps back. We need to really apply our hearts fully to seeking and to serving God now. 
Uh, the world, as I mentioned, is just going absolutely crazy. I don't even want to talk about that tonight, but I think you know some of the things that I'm referring to. And we're only going to witness the world getting crazier. God promised in these last days, gross darkness is going to cover the earth, and it's going to be upon the peoples. But praise God, we can arise and shine, for the glory of the Lord has come. We can be filled, filled with the Holy Spirit. We can know the Word of God, and we can know where we're going in these last days. The world is so confused. Total confusion is coming upon the world. But we know who we are, and we know where we're going. And that wisdom and knowledge we derive from the Word of God. That's why it's so important now that we're spending these moments together in God's Word. Now, God spelled out at least five reasons why the children of Israel went through their wilderness experience. Most of these are listed in one key passage that we've been looking at. We'll read again. It's Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 to 5. And it reads, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. God led them in the wilderness. This wasn't an accident. He was in charge. He was leading them. And then he lists the reasons why he did that. To humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart. We've already looked at those aspects, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We completed last time looking at that third aspect. And then it goes on to say, Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. And the five purposes or five reasons for this long 40-year parenthesis in the wilderness we've listed on page 57 in the notes. Number one, to humble them. Number two, to test them in order to know what was in their heart. Three, to teach them to live by the Word of God. Four, and this is where we're going to pick it up tonight, to discipline them. And then finally, number five, to remove unbelief, rebellion, and backsliding. You know, the, the desert is a wonderful place to fall in love with God's Word. When we go through difficult times, when we go through challenges, that's the time for us to seek God in His Word. Because God was very clear, man shall not live by bread alone. He fed them manna for 40 years in the wilderness, but he was teaching them more than just knowing that God can put bread on your table and give you water to drink and take care of you. He wanted them to learn how to live 
by the Word of God. So they were learning how to live not just by every word written in the Bible, but it says specifically by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We talked about this last time. It's when God speaks to you, He opens His mouth and He breathes that word into your heart. That is a life-giving experience, and that is how our faith is built up and grows. We're told in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. When you hear God speak his word to you, man, something comes alive inside of you. And I know in recent days with the Supreme Court decision and a lot of other things that are happening in the culture, I heard God speak to me. And if you don't listen for what God has to say, you can get discouraged and sidetracked and and all messed up. But we need to be a people listening to God, hearing His voice, and delighting in His Word. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, we've come to the fourth of five purposes for this long, protracted period in the wilderness. We are on page 66 again in the notes. If you are trying to follow me, I'm jumping around a little bit. And we want to look tonight at God's discipline. A lot of people cringe when they hear the word discipline. God disciplined his people in the wilderness. Now, that word, discipline, comes from the Hebrew word, which means to chastise, literally with blows, or with words. It also implies to instruct, to chasten, to chastise, to correct, instruct, punish, reform, reprove, teach. It's a, it's a word that covers a variety of meanings, but I think you get the gist of what it means. It And he actually says there in Deuteronomy, As a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So this is very similar to the kind of instruction, and yes, even chastisement and correction that a loving parent would be providing for their child. As a loving father, God corrects and trains his children. And as frightening as the word discipline might be, uh, remember, we are called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And we'll talk more about that later on. But a disciple is one who has been trained or disciplined. We don't just automatically become a disciple. It's a process that God takes us through. Teaching, training, instruction, correction, and even sometimes chastening and chastisement. Now, as I mentioned, as a loving father, God was correcting the whole nation of Israel. 
And we'll see in the fifth and final part of this section, it involves some very severe dealings from God. And let me be very clear tonight, God is a good God, He's gentle, He's sweet, He's kind, He's loving, and He's also severe. Paul has a very strange expression in Romans chapter 11 that I've often pondered. He says, we need to behold both the goodness and the severity of God. It's a strange mix. The goodness and the severity. But you need to have both of those revelations of God if you're going to have a healthy balance in your relationship with Him. It's not all cotton candy and Santa Claus. That's the concept some people have of God. He's just a big old Santa Claus. You can jump up in his lap and ask him anytime you want candy or a lollipop, and he'll give it to you. And he never corrects you. He never has anything bad to say to you. Well, try explaining that one to the Israelites, because a whole bunch of them died in the wilderness because God was dealing with them very severely. So, let me just give you a couple of examples. I don't have time in this study to exhaust this point, but I think a few examples will give you some idea of the severe punishment and chastening that God brought on the Israelites. And again, you'll see this especially when we come to the fifth and final part. And some of these, we're not even going to be looking up the verses. I'll give you a reference if you want to look it up yourself. In Numbers 12, we have an example of God's chastening, His discipline, and it was instructive, but it was very severe kind of instruction. If you read Numbers chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron were criticizing Moses. And the Bible's very clear that because of that, God was angered, and he smote Miriam with leprosy. And pretty severe judgment for just gossiping and criticizing one of your leaders. But that's the kind of discipline God was using on the children of Israel, even the leaders, in the wilderness. You may also remember that after the children of Israel made the golden calf at Mount Sinai, that's, a, that's another whole story that we haven't had time to really look at, but uh, while Moses was up in the mountain, Aaron gets the brilliant idea of collecting all the people's gold earrings and jewelry, and they fashion a golden calf, and by the time Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai, they're going wild, dancing around the calf, fornicating, uh, worshiping the calf, even uh, giving glory to the calf, saying, you brought us out of Egypt. And God was so angry at Aaron, now, in the previous example, 
although Miriam and Aaron were brother and sister, and they were both criticizing, uh, it was Miriam that got smitten with the leprosy. But after the making of the golden calf, uh, Moses goes to Aaron and says, what the heck is going on around here? Well, that's not an exact quote. That's my paraphrase. But he was upset, and he could see the whole thing was going completely wild. And he said, what are you doing? And Aaron's answer is classic. He said, well, a miracle just happened. We threw the gold into the fire, and out came this calf. Oh, give me a break. God was so upset, the scriptures teach, that he was ready to destroy Aaron right then and there at Mount Sinai. The only reason he lived. And, by the way, he became high priest of Israel. That's another miracle, which we don't have time to talk about. But... The only reason Aaron's life was spared is explained for us in Deuteronomy 9, verses 16 to 20. When I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. This is Moses talking to Aaron. You have made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. Verse 19. I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me. And the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. But at that time, I prayed for Aaron too. God was ready to destroy the whole bunch. But because of Moses' intercession, He spared the Israelites, and he even spared Aaron. Then we come to Moses. God was even very severe in his dealings with Moses. You remember what happened the second time that they brought water from the rock. And I want to read this because it's such a critical turning point for the children of Israel, and especially for Moses, from Numbers chapter 20. Numbers 20, from verse 2 to 13. Basically what we learn here is Moses lost his cool. He lost his temper with the Israelites. That wouldn't be too hard to do. These people were very frustrating. But he lost his temper spoke rashly, and God said, that's it, Moses, you're not entering the promised land either. And he was forbidden entrance into the promised land. You have to really think about that one. Because Moses was the man God used to bring them out of Egypt, take them these 40 years through the desert, and then just before they're about to enter, he takes Moses and tells him, you can't enter either. That's pretty severe. Numbers 20, starting with verse 2. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. 
Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. Now, pause here for a minute. God told Moses to speak to the rock. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community, so they and their livestock can drink. What a patient God. (laughs) With all their grumblings and quarrelings and murmurings, He says, Moses, just speak to the rock, and we're going to give these people some water to drink. You will bring water out of the rock for the community, so they and their livestock can drink. Verse 9, So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, (laughs) and you can tell here, he's starting to lose his cool. Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. He was never instructed to do that. Water gushed out, and the community and the livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy, In the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, and where he was proved holy among them. And just kind of summarizing what happened there at Meribah, we read about it in a number of places, but in Psalm 106, Verses 32 to 33, we read, By the waters of Meribah they angered the Lord, and trouble came to Moses because of them. For they rebelled against the Spirit of God, and rash words came from Moses' lips. Wow. So, among many others, Miriam... Aaron and Moses all came under the heavy hand of God's discipline, his chastening, and yes, even his punishment. It gets far worse than that. And we may try to get a little bit into the fifth purpose for the wilderness this time, but it'll definitely take us another whole session as well to cover that. What does this mean to us as Christians? Sadly, many New Testament believers have this concept that when the Old Testament ended, God got saved and he became a nice guy. 
and now he's no longer in a bad mood, and he doesn't get angry at anybody, and he just loves everyone, and he's happy about everything, and, you know, he's just thrilled that America has now embraced gay marriage, and, you know, people are running like wild, crazy people through the streets. God's just happy about everything. He he tolerates everything, and he doesn't seem to have a problem with anybody now. He He's just... He's a nice God, and he's nice to everybody. Uh, no. God didn't need to get saved. Matter of fact, at the end of the Old Testament, lest we fall into that trap and believe that lie from the devil, God declares unequivocally, I am the Lord, I change not. God was not about to change as we transition from the old covenant to the new yes he had a new covenant god is the same yesterday today and forever and we find in the new testament examples of the severity of god and i'd mentioned earlier in romans 11 paul is writing to christians and he said behold the goodness and the severity of the Lord. And there's a day coming soon where we read about in Revelation chapter 6, the wrath of God and the Lamb is going to be poured out on this earth. The wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb. So uh, don't for a minute believe that God is done getting angry. He gets really hot. He gets really angry with sin and rebellion and uncleanness. And in the New Testament, you and I need to understand what, what is God going to do in the life of a believer? Is he going to discipline us? Is he going to correct us? Or is he just going to look the other way and say, Oh, I love you. That's okay. Keep doing whatever it is that you're doing. Well, without belaboring the point, I want to just look at two portions of Scripture, and you can look up others on your own, that I think will open your eyes to the fact that God is going to be disciplining us as a father disciplines his son the same way he was disciplining Israel in the wilderness. Not necessarily with the same techniques, but the same spirit is going to be manifest there of a father who loves his son, and he will indeed discipline, correct, train, and instruct his children. Hebrews chapter 12 from verse 5 to 11. This is Old, this is New Testament now, this is not Old Testament. And notice the usage of words like discipline and chasten. From verse 5. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? This is an encouraging word that the Apostles bringing, this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses 
his son. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Let me read those final words again. He's saying, be encouraged. I'm writing to encourage you. If God is your father, and you're his son or you're his daughter, rejoice. That's a great thing. Don't lose heart when he, what? Rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, disciplines the one he loves, and chastens everyone he accepts as his son. You know, our world now is getting so dark and so confused. They talk about love and they don't know what love is. They talk about hate and they don't know what hate is. And they think that love is some perverted, some twisted concept that they've invented when indeed God is love. Our definition of love comes from God. And you can't have true love without discipline. And if you and I are going to be God's child, expect Him to discipline us at times, chasten us at times, and even rebuke us at times. Let me read this again. The Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastens everyone He accepts as His Son. Okay, verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as His children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, let's go back to verse 7. He says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone, meaning everyone who is a true child of God, everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, 
not true sons and daughters at all. The NIV has translated this very nicely. You basically get the meaning of it, but that's not a literal translation. And if you have King James or some of the other translations, it might give a more literal translation of this. And it's very strong language, but it's from the Bible. So I like to use it to show just how serious a matter this is. Basically, what verse 8 is saying, if you claim to be a child of God and yet you're not receiving any discipline, God never rebukes you, he never disciplines you, he never chastens you, the writer of Hebrews says you're a bastard, you're an illegitimate child, you're not a true son or daughter of God. So, as painful as discipline is, and you find that several times in this passage, it's not fun. He says it's not pleasant to go through discipline. It's painful. But the encouragement of being disciplined is, God is my Father. He's treating me as a true child. And the discipline is for my good, and it will bring forth a harvest of righteousness in the end. And he goes on to say this isn't exactly like the way our earthly parents may have disciplined us. It says in verse uh, 9, We have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. I've told some stories about discipline I got from my father. It wasn't fun when I got it, but I am so thankful today for that discipline. I am so thankful, and it gives me even more respect for him, for, for the father he was. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits, that's God, and live? They, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. Our parents did the best they could. But God disciplines us for our good. Whatever you go through in your walk with God, don't ever doubt that God is doing it for your good. It's always with that intention. God loves us, he loves his children, and because of his love, he disciplines us. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God's desire is to make us disciples. And as we become true disciples, trained by God, we've gone through these disciplines and chastenings and trainings and instructions. It ultimately produces peace, holiness, and righteousness in our lives. Those are precious commodities. 
Another important scripture is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. And if you're at all familiar with Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you have seven messages to seven different churches there, and some very strong rebukes, some very harsh words are given to the various churches there. Um, God doesn't mince words when he's talking to his sons and daughters. In one of those churches, the, the last of the seven messages, the Laodicean church, <coughs> he tells them, you're lukewarm, you've lost your first love. If you remain lukewarm, you make me so sick, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. That's what the Bible says. I'm not making this up. You can read it yourself. And then he affirms his love for them in Revelation 3, verse 19. Jesus says the following, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. We must be very careful uh, not to misinterpret God's actions when he rebukes us, corrects us, speaks to us and says, that's wrong, you need to repent, you need to change or else. Uh, that doesn't mean he's mad at us or he wants to kill us. It's because he loves us, he's rebuking us and disciplining us. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. And yes, sometimes his discipline can be severe. In Acts chapter 5, we read that in the early church, and I believe God wanted to establish this early on in the first church, that he wasn't playing games. And there were a few people who were playing games with God, and he showed up and basically said, no, we're not going to play games in this thing called church. And you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They both dropped dead in church. Their corpses had to be carried out by some of the other believers in the church. Now, thank God that doesn't happen every time somebody in one of our congregations tells a lie. And they lied to the Holy Spirit, and they dropped dead right in the church meeting. And the Bible says, great fear came upon all the people. The fear of God came on the church. We need the fear of God. And the modern church has no fear of God because they've been taught that God's a Santa Claus. He never gets mad, he never disciplines, he never rebukes, he never chastens. But nothing could be further from the truth. And believe you me, in these last days, we're going to see the mighty hand of God. Not just healing the sick, casting out devils, but we're going to see judgments, chastenings, and chastisements coming in these last days. And we're going to see, yes, the great fear of God, once again, restored in the midst of God's people. Because these are the last days. These are the last days, and God is sending out his final call for those who want to walk with him, who want to be with him, who want to be like him. Without holiness, it goes on to say a little further 
on in Hebrews 12, without holiness, no man will see the Lord. And discipline is absolutely essential if we're going to share and partake in God's holiness. As many as I love, I rebuke, chasten, and discipline. All right, that concludes the fourth purpose for the wilderness. Let me just introduce what we're going to be looking at in much more detail next time, the fifth and the final reason for this 40-year time in the wilderness or in the desert. This fifth purpose um, we've listed here on page 69, if you're following in the notes. It was here that God removed unbelief, rebellion, and backsliding. And that's one of the purposes of the wilderness. It's to get rid of unbelief. It's to get rid of rebellion. It's to get rid of backsliding. And sadly, in the case of the Old Testament, mostly that meant killing them. Many, many of that original group of Israelites that came out of Egypt through the Passover lamb, crossed through the Red Sea, saw the great salvation of God, came to Mount Sinai, saw the glory and the fire on the mountain, out of that original group, only two entered into the promised land. All the rest of that original generation died out in the wilderness. Only Joshua and Caleb were able to make the whole journey out of bondage into abundance. Now, the first thing we'll look at in this section, and this is probably as far as we'll be able to get tonight, and we just read an example of this earlier, it seemed like the Israelites were perpetually grumbling and complaining. Always complaining. We don't like this manna. Where's the water? It's too hot. We don't like it out here. We should go back to Egypt. We had a better life there. On and on and on they grumbled and complained. And God destroyed them. God destroyed the grumblers and the complainers And we're not going to look there right now, but we've already read. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writing to the Christian church in Corinth, he reminds them of what happened to the grumblers and the complainers in the wilderness. And he tells them, don't repeat the same mistakes, and you don't want to end up the way they ended up. I'm going to read a very long portion of scripture, and this is probably uh, where we'll be concluding tonight, but I want you to hear this whole thing because I think it's important. Numbers 11, from verse 1 all the way down to verse 34. Numbers 11, 1 to 34. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. They can't hear you. On MixLR? Well, on the phone. Somebody's driving, and um, the background noise is... Oh. Okay. Okay, I just let them know. 
if you're on the phone and you can't hear well, sorry about that. Uh, hopefully the recording will turn out well and you can uh, listen to that later on. Sometimes technology's on our side, sometimes it's not. Numbers 11, verse 1. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So that place was called Taborah, because fire from the Lord had burned among them. The rabble with them began to crave other food, and again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost, also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic, but now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed, and by the way, we learned last time it was called angel's food, and here they are grumbling about it. We've lost our appetite. We can't stand this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot and made it into loaves. Tasted something Tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you? that you put the burden of all these people on me. Did I conceive all these people? <clears throat> Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. Verse 18, Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten, or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wailed before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, Here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say I will give them meat to eat for a whole month. Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for them. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. Verse 31. 
Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits deep. That's about three feet deep. All around the camp, as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten omers. Then they spread them out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, the place was named Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had craved other food. What we're going to find in this fifth section, and we're going to stop here, is how severely God dealt with unbelief, with rebellion, with backsliding, and specifically here with their grumbling and their complaining. Many would die in the wilderness because of that very fact. All right, we'll continue next time, and we'll see clearly that the 40 years in the desert was because of what happened in 40 days when they went in to spy the land, and that spy mission did not go well at all. More about that next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your holy word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth, O God. Lord, we're living in the last days, a time when you said there would be a famine, not of food, but a famine of hearing the words of God. Lord, how blessed we are to still have our Bibles, to still be able to come together like this and study your word. Lord, the doors of grace are rapidly closing, and in these remaining moments of time, help us to seek you with all of our heart. Turn to you. Seek your word. Listen carefully to your Holy Spirit as you give us instructions for these last days. And Lord, as we're learning tonight, Lord, as a father loves his son or his daughter, so you discipline those whom you love. God, we thank you for your discipline. We thank you for correcting us when we're wrong. We thank you for teaching us and training us and guiding us in the right way. And Lord, if any of us are going astray, if any of us are backsliding, if any of us are, are in error or going into wrong things, correct us, speak to us, wake us up, stir us up, grant us repentance so we can turn to you and get back on track quickly, O oh God. Father, I thank you for your abundant grace. I thank you for your mighty power working in us effectually, changing us from glory to glory into the very image and likeness of Jesus Christ. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And we say, come back quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, get your church ready. Prepare your people. Sanctify us. Separate us from this corrupt and polluted world that we may be separate. Come out from among them and be on your side, O God. Father, bless each and every one listening by phone or internet or those that will be listening to this recording at some future time. Lord, this is the word of your grace. Give us grace to stand in these last days. We'll give you glory and praise and honor 
In Jesus' name, amen, amen.